Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Bannock of Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as a paperback, as an audiobook, but that ebook, esteemed audience, the ebook of Bannock of Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest novel ever written is available to download for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So good news, go get your hands on the greatest novel ever written. Once you've enjoyed that, well, you can pay cash money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, the second greatest novel ever <laughs> written, followed by Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, which is the fourth greatest novel ever written. <laughs> Because the third is altogether now a zombie story. My other book by Robert, I don't know. They're all great. <laughs> but you can get more information on all of them. And more importantly, interviews with thousands of authors, editors, literary agents, book people, the world's best people at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, my guest today is none other than Dr. Rose Brock, who has sat very patiently through this long introduction. Uh, Dr. Brock, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I thought I had it. I was ready for number three, but you got me. <laughs> A classy move would have been to have inserted somebody else's book, but nah. Nah. <laughs> and get their what? own podcast and promote their <laughs> book. <laughs> Seems fair. Seems like a fair choice. <laughs> Oh, uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their book or their background, because why would I do that when you're right here uh, and, and could do a better job of it than I could? So if you would give a esteemed audience an overview of your background, and then we'll talk about hope wins and all kinds of fun stuff. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, and also thank you for having me on today. Um, so my background. Okay. So yes, yeah, so you introduced me as Dr. Rose Brock. Um, and as my friends like to call me, Dr. Rosalicious, um, <laughs> which literally the day I defended my dissertation, when I got my PhD, I came back to work. I was at that point, a middle school librarian. Um, and there was a lab coat, which, you know, library science, you don't actually need the lab coat, but it was fun. Um, and I still have it to this day and, and across, you know, there was a, they'd had it um, they'd had it personalized and, um, and it said Dr. Rosalicious and I, I wear it proudly from time to time. So, um, so a little bit more about me. Um, so I grew up, um, uh, <laughs> you didn't say how much more about me. I just said that I was going to say a little, but maybe I'll make it a lot. Um, I grew up in Germany and my family came to the United States when I was nine years old. Um, I, um, back when we, when we came, this was many years ago and my family moved to Oklahoma, um, cause, uh, my dad, uh, was in the uh, military and had retired. And at that point, um, you know, there wasn't an ESL program. And so, um, you know, I, I was put actually in a special education program. Um, and which is really an interesting kind of start, mostly because I was, I struggled with reading because, you know, I'd always been bilingual, but I'd gone to a, a German, um, in school and, um, instruction in German, and then had transitioned to an American school right before we moved. And that made things a little challenging. So, um, I had some great teachers, um, and fell in love with stories and, um, and that's kind of been my world ever since. Um, I, you know, stayed in Oklahoma through college, uh, was an English major, knew I wanted to be a teacher starting in about fifth grade, uh, had an, uh, an epiphany. I loved the classroom. I loved learning. I loved 
just that entire envi- environment. But I did get in trouble a lot as a kid um, for mostly for talking in class um, <laughs> because I always had something to say that I was sure was brilliant. <laughs> and my teachers inevitably, and, and this was a consistent pattern. I mean, in the Lawton public school system where I um, went from fourth grade through high school, uh, it, it was like code 27, which um, was like talks too much. And I got those often <laughs> because I always felt very inclined to contribute um, to um, the general conversation about what we were doing in class and many other things. So, um, so yeah, so I knew I wanted to be a teacher and that's exactly what I did. I um, got a degree in English and then um, got my certification to teach uh, my family, my husband and I, um, moved um, to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth right after college, like immediately right after college when we had a U-Haul like four days later. Um, and I uh, started teaching and I was a middle school um, teacher. So middle school people um, are my are my favorite people. I spent 20 years as a mid- middle school educator. Um, I transitioned from the classroom to a bigger classroom um, in the library um, upon the request of a principal um, that I had who um, really generously offered me a chance to become our campus librarian. And the funny thing about that is, you know, as much as I love books, as much as um, stories were just always a part of my world, I didn't ever really envision myself being a librarian. And I'm not sure what the disconnect was, but it it was just there. And so when she first approached me about becoming um, a librarian, I kind of guffawed because I thought, well, you know, my hair is, you know, way too... (laughs) cool to be a librarian, which is actually kind of funny. And I bought into all those silly, ridiculous stereotypes. I don't rock a bun, although I could, but I, but I don't. Um, and, you know, I wasn't so convinced that that was what I needed to do, but she was absolutely sure of it. And when I pressed her to find out why, you know, she, she had come to me, there were lots of other language arts teachers and our librarian, who was a very lovely, kind woman, but ready for retirement. I'll just say that. Um, she, her response was, you know, she, um, and it was one of the kindest things anyone's ever said to me. She gestured to my classroom and she said, I want you to do this for the whole school. And that really spoke to my heart. And it was a kind of a leap of faith. So I transitioned, I went to library school, um, got my master's in library science. I had been, I had already worked on a master's in reading prior. And um, then after that, while I was in library school, I kind of fell in love with librarianship and realized like, wow, I mean, being a classroom teacher is amazing, but the library, you really can, it's, you can be impactful on all kids in the building, right? You're really changing like school culture um, if you do it right. And so um, jumped into the job, absolutely loved it. I finished that degree. And then I had some, uh, some of my professors who approached me about staying on for a PhD, which Again, not something I had ever envisioned for myself. Um, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. So, you know, I was already achieving more than maybe, you know, was even the expectation. Um, and so since then, so once I, I, it took me a, a long time to get that PhD because I worked full time as a school librarian and had a family, um, but I did finish and became Dr. Rosalicious and, um, transitioned at that point to academic work. Um, I teach at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, and and it's a really wonderful um, university. Uh, I teach in the library science and technology department, and um, now I primarily teach um, children's literature and young adult literature. I teach some library science coursework too, because again, I was a practitioner for 13 years and love, love, love being a school librarian. I will 
um, always say it's still the best job I probably will ever have in my career of work. Um, librarians are, they are heroes. Um, and so I love getting to teach teachers that want to become librarians and take my experiences and and try to, you know, really um, nurture all the great stuff about them. But um, so that's what I've been doing. And then in my um, in my spare time, I do a couple other things, which we might talk about. I helped found a big book festival in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I've uh, published two anthologies um, uh, for young people. The first one was called Hope Nation, which is a young adult um, anthology. Um, and then now um, uh, just um, just published Hope Wins, um, which is what we're going to talk about. I'm very excited to, to talk about that with you. First of all, to all librarians watching or listening, we love you. And your hair looks great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Librarians are like, they're amazing. And it, it, it is really kind of funny when we laugh about like all those stereotypes, the buns, the shushing, those things don't really happen. Um, I was, you know, in my years, in my 13 years of being a school librarian on two separate occasions, I was shushed, but as the librarian, like adults in my library shushed me and I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> what is this is my space? I mean, it's everybody's space, but like, you're not coming into my, like, I don't do that to kids. I don't do that to people. Libraries are active, busy places. You know, they're, they're just really um, the heart of schools, um, in my opinion, and, and I'm clearly right, so. <laughs> 100%. Would you be on this show if you weren't right? No. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody who ever comes on this show, 100% correct. All librarians have great looking hair. That's just the way it is. It is. Uh, Insensible shoes. It's available now. Esteemed audience, get your copy. We're going to talk about it, but I've got to know, how do you go? You're in special, you said you're in, you're in special education classes because you have difficulty reading. Uh, obviously, somewhere in there, there's a, something changes that you become a reading enthusiast. Uh, or this is just an incredible coincidence that you're doing all of this education and, and book related things. So when does that shift and how does it shift? So I think, you know, because um, and, and I, you know, I don't want to make light of, of the, the um, challenges that English language learners have. I had some great advantage um, in that I I was bilingual, you know, from from the beginning. Um but the difference was, you know, just my instruction, like I went to a German kindergarten in first and second grade. So that shift, that's really kind of such a pivotal time for learning how to read. And I was learning, but I was learning in one language and then it shifted to another language. So really, you know, um, I didn't have, um, I didn't necessarily have any processing disorders that a lot of kids that end up in, in special education have. What happened was that they simply didn't really know what to do with me. They knew that I needed some small group instruction, that I needed some special care. And so, um, again, this is, you know, this is 40 years ago in a little town in Oklahoma. So at least those teachers were ab absolutely correct in what they did. I remember having a lot of shame, though, of being like pulled out when language arts instruction was happening, like, you know. At that time of the day, um, I would be collected and I would go to another space in a small group environment. And um, that really bothered me because it was embarrassing to me. At that moment, I remember thinking like, everybody knows I'm not good enough. Everybody knows that there's something wrong with me. And you know, that's heartbreaking to think about those stigmas. And it made me think a lot just as, a, as an educator in my classroom and in my libraries about how we level playing fields and we can talk about like audiobooks and other things. But I think all those experiences really spoke to how I wanted to envision um, equity in classrooms and libraries uh, where you have a least restrictive environment where kids, all kids can see themselves in that space. Um, 
but so what happened was that, that that teacher was so smart and she read aloud to us and she just read some of her favorite books. And what I would do is, you know, she'd read Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. And then when we were done, I would go check it out from the library and I would read it to myself. So what she had done was built scaffolding because I, you know, I already knew the story and I knew the characters. And, and so I could read it for enjoyment. And really, you know, I've told people often, and I've even written about it when I was a, when I was a doc student that I, I credit um, Nancy Drew for turning me into a reader. Um, and before I had real friends, I had those imaginary friends, you know, um, uh, Nancy and George and Bess, although I thought I was a much better friend to Nancy than they would ever be. Um, but, you know, it really, it really speaks to the power in my mind. Um, it speaks to the power of series books for, for young people. Um, and just growing passion for stories because same kind of thing. Like, so I felt, you know, I read the secret of the old clock and then I kept reading and, you know, like 30, 40 books later, because it was easier in every book I read and consumed. I wanted to read the next one. It also, I got better at the actual skills that go into reading. And so that really was the transition. I didn't have I didn't have those, um, again, I didn't, I didn't have any cognitive challenges that were making reading hard for me. I just wasn't practiced and I was still working on those, some of those language transitions. Um, I still struggle to spell in English sometimes, thank goodness for, you know, I mean, I do okay, but, um, you know, English is a tricky language. And even, even if you can speak it, it doesn't mean you necessarily know how to write it and just how phonetically, you know, everything is so it's, there are a lot of language uh, languages, German being one of them, where things actually, you know, are spelled like they sound, even if they sound really horrible. <laughs> and so, um, so that's really what happened. That's how I went from one to the other. And it happened pretty quickly. So that fourth grade year, my first year there in school was, um, you know, we read um, some things that I, I really, truly fell in love with. Um, E.B. White. Uh, E.B. White's Trumpet of the Swan. We read Charlotte's Web too, but I fell in love with Trumpet of the Swan. We read, um, you know, the Laura Ingle uh, Wilder's books, uh, or Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, books, which, you know, we know today are very problematic. But at that point, you know, that it was an adventure story um, or series for me. Um, and then again, my beloved Nancy Drew. And, and, um, and so I just all of a sudden was consumed with stories I wanted to read all the time. And I was growing up, and, you know, I just became a, um, such an avid reader um, that, you know, like by the next year, I was actually what they considered on grade level. And, you know, by the following year, I was put in gifted for whatever that's worth. Um, and, and then I just didn't really stop and, until I got a little older and got into some trouble. And then I took my reading underground. <laughs> Depends on what kind of, you know, if we want to keep this a family show, I won't tell you about that. <laughs> well, uh, tell me about it. And we'll just edit out the parts that are appropriate. <laughs> Right. No, I'm being facetious. It's all appropriate. No. So like, you know, so then I went into middle school or junior high back then. And, um, you know, I was the kid that walked around school, you know, like the girl with the big, big, thick uh, Coke bottle glasses who read books as she was walking in bumping stuff. Like I was that stereotype too. And then I got contacts and I tell everybody, you know, contacts ruined my academic career in um, late uh, junior high and high school because all of a sudden, you know, boys were noticing me. I was kind of cute. And I was like, well, I don't want to be that nerdy girl anymore. And so um, I stopped like, you know, I stopped being um, overt with my, my reading life. I stopped taking books to school where people saw me. And instead I was reading my um, Sweet Valley High and, and other, 
you know, classic 80s romance um, books um, at home and just kind of were, you know, kind of, I was more secretive about it because I was so worried about, you know, um, appearance and so forth. And, you know, the thing that I, I recognize now as a, as a, a, a grown up, so to speak, uh, having that label is that, you know, what I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to contend with the idea that I could be, you know, a cute girl and also, uh, you know, a, a bookish girl. And I certainly hope that young kids figure that out. I think that's something that always, you know, identity is, is everything when you're that age. And I didn't know that I could be all those things. I do now, right? Um, and so I'm happy to be um, a combination of those things. But back then, I didn't. So I, I struggled in high school because I, I uh, uh, didn't do much academically. I went from being, again, in the gifted program to failing my freshman year of high school. And, um, and having to repeat that in summer school, going into my sophomore year, still technically as a freshman in high school, because I didn't have enough credits um, and um, having to play catch up for the rest of high school because of being a knucklehead really for one year. <laughs> you, you were failing just because you wanted to look cool or? Well, no, I was failing because I wasn't doing my homework. <laughs> Not just, I mean, I became very social and um, yeah, like, you know, had lots of different boyfriends and was, you know, um, just getting into stuff I really had no business getting into. Um, I always tell people that, you know, my, my parents were tired. I was the, the youngest of a family of four kids and uh, with a, a decade gap between my three older siblings and me. So by the time um, my parents were parenting me. It was, it was pretty free range. And so I was making decisions for myself that um, I was not in a, uh, an emotional or uh, mature enough place to make for myself. So, you know, my mom was, I mean, my mom was an amazing woman, but um, she was, she wasn't so much that she was hands-off. She just trusted me more than probably she should have in many cases. So I made a lot of bad choices uh, to say the least, but I, I clearly turned it back around and, you know, uh, and figured it out eventually. And, you know, then went to college and had a much better, did a much better job in college than I ever did in high school. Um, you know, so I was a late bloomer, so to speak, which is okay. Well, I'm biased as somebody who also made some questionable choices along the way, but I think it's better to get those out of the way early and like, oh, now yeah. I'm really sure that's not the path I want to take. And I can course yeah. correct for, for going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in looking back at all of it, I do think like it 100% um, made a profound difference on me as an educator and probably just, and you know, I, I, even in the work I do today, I think it still is impactful because when I was still, when I was a classroom teacher in a library and I would see those kids, the ones that were clearly bright, but just had like no real work ethic or just weren't motivated. Like there was something out there they were into and it just wasn't, they weren't interested in playing school as I always called it. And those were the kids that, you know, I really loved and, and I tried not to write them off because I knew that um, it was very likely there was a whole lot more to them. And if they could just find their own way, eventually that they would be great. And, you know, thanks to social media, um, I, I have had the good fortune of seeing a lot of those kids that really struggled. Um, you know, they find me on Facebook or whatever, and I get to see them be like, you know, grownups with families and, and successful in their, in their lives. And it's really, I mean, I, I only had, you know, uh, a glimpse of that. I mean, I, you know, um, in a very small role, but it, I certainly didn't give up cheering for them. I had hope for them. <laughs> My brand. <laughs> 
Yes, you are a, a hope dealer. I, I mean, am. I am. Before we get to all the hope, I must say that one of the great tragedies, there's so many tragedies of humanity, but one there of the are. tragedies is that reading is not a far more attractive quality. That should be the most attractive quality. You're looking for a mate. That one's thinking. That <laughs> one has useful ideas that will be useful to you. Go talk to them. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, what's funny is that my husband of 29 years, who I met in high school, a little later though, we went to different um, junior highs. Uh, he totally, you know, he, I mean, we're kind of ridiculous in that, you know, I've had friends say like looking at pictures of, of us back in the eighties, they'll say, you know, like y'all look like John Hughes characters, which is kind of true. You know, he's like the, you know, he was the, you know, like captain of the baseball team, but also like wicked smart. And, you know, and I had been the naughty girl that kind of self-corrected <laughs> and, that's one of the things he loves about me. He loves that, that I care so much about stories and learning and all that today. Um, he, you know, he had to, there was a little leap of faith for a while that, you know, he had to kind of uh, make peace with, um, with all the, you know, trouble I'd gotten into, but um, it was fine. And I think he also liked that. I, I think there was a part of him that probably appreciated me being a little naughty. <laughs> <laughs> but he, yeah, he definitely digs. He digs my my uh, my bookish ways for sure. I'm not editing out anything from that. That was absolutely <laughs> charming. <laughs> so uh, from there, when uh, when do you fall back in love with books and say, I don't care what the world thinks. I'm going to read out in public. If you see me, I'll have a book in my hand, and that's just going to be the way of it. I think, you know, really, um, you know, for the rest of high school, I mean, I kept, I never stopped reading. Books were always important to me, but, you know, as often as the way, you know, in high school, I was super busy. I was, um, I, you know, I had, um, I, I've always had a job or two, usually two, even as a, even as a high school student, again, my family, um, we didn't have much in the way of money and I'm not, I'm not, you know, lots of, we had a home and that's a lot more than a lot of people have. And so I'm, I'm certainly not going to oversell, but you know, we were kind of my, I would say my parents were kind of working poor. And, um, and so I, from the time I, I started my first job when I was 13, my sister worked at a, um, a diner and on the weekends, if they were short a bus or anything like that, she'd be like, you have to come to work with me. So I'd work that she worked from 10 PM to six in the morning. So um, starting in, in junior high, sometimes, and certainly around holidays, um, I would go work. So when I was 15, I lied about my age and got a job at McDonald's in the mall. And then I had, um, when you work at the mall, you know, all the other, the managers of the stores in the mall, of course, come to, to eat and get drinks and so forth. And so I met, um, the managers of two, um, two stores in the mall, the, the Kenny shoes, which I don't think even exists anymore. And then Foot Locker, which does. And uh, both of them offered me jobs as um, their cashier and within about a month time frame, So I ended up working for both of them. So I worked during the week at um, Kenny shoes and I worked at the Foot Locker um, on the weekend. And um, then, you know, was a high school student and I was a, I was did drill team. And, and so you know, my reading, I mean, I had those books that I loved and that I always made time for, but I don't really think that I became like a truly voracious reader of books of choice until after college. Now I was an English major. So, you know, you major in English and, and literature, you're going to read a lot. And really quickly, I felt super passionate about that. Um, I discovered art history along the way. And so ended up, um, studying both of those. And, um, 
but you know, I, I loved the, the, the literature that I was, um, experiencing, um, in college. And so then after I finished, I, um, started teaching. Um, I remember, you know, I wanted to share those kinds of experiences, those kind of aha moments that I'd had on my own. And as well as, as a, um, an English student, um, you know, an English major, um, in college and set out to, you know, I got my first curriculum and, um, and realized like I wanted to, um, do something more than <laughs> what was expected of me because it was so awful to be really frank. Um, and, um, so I started reading, uh, YA and this was now like 28 years ago, trying to find something because I was teaching eighth grade that very first year. And the, the curriculum was pretty dreadful. Um, and there were some things that, you know, uh, that I absolutely was fine with, but um, there was the dreaded novel unit at the end of the school year that had the kids reading um, for six weeks independently with no engagement with each other, no discussion, just sitting at a desk, reading a book based on their reading level, interest aside. Um, the choices were all classic. So it was like, if you were a good reader, you got Watership Down. And if you were a terrible reader, you got the pig man. And if you were somewhere in between, you might get call of the wild or Shane, which just, I remember looking at this curriculum and thinking, holy hell, I cannot do this to kids. I can't watch kids, um, you know, read, um, to themselves for six weeks. And these books are dreadful. So I went to a Barnes and Noble, which back then in the early nineties, the YA section was like literally two shelves. It, there was no dedicated area like you find in bookstores today. And so I just started buying copies of books thinking I'm going to find something and started reading um, young adult books myself to see if I could find something better. Because I had this crazy idea that, wow, what if we all read the same book? And wow, what if I read it aloud to my kids and we could stop and talk about what we were reading and thinking and feeling? And it changed my life. Because then the kids were, were engaged and they, they would be part of the conversation. Nobody's off in the corner pretending to read, but really just staring at the wall. Yeah, that and and just seeing their enthusiasm for it and also falling in love. Like, so I had been reading pretty much most of that that first year as a teacher on the weekends and at night, YA, um, because, again, I had just come off a college degree where I was reading, you know, um, you know, a, a adult books, so to speak, and, and literary uh, fiction um, that had been selected by my different English professors. And I read some outstanding books. I don't want to sell those books short, but they were not certainly not things that were um, that those kids were ready for to read and, and they weren't things that they would have been engaged with at all. So I was reading YA and I'll never forget, um, the book, the book that once again, changed my life as an educator, uh, on a Saturday morning, I'd gone to Barnes and Noble the night before and picked up a couple of new novels to try out, so to speak, to see if maybe one of them would work as my class, my, as my whole class book. And, um, I started reading this book. Um, I'd woke up pretty early, like, six o'clock and I started reading and I couldn't put it down. So, you know, like I'm getting coffee and I'm walking and reading and I go to the bathroom and I'm taking it with me. And, um, and it was a book by, um, a, a YA legend named Chris Crutcher. I don't know if you've ever had Chris on your show or not, but, um, Chris Crutcher, um, and the book is called staying fat for Sarah Burns. And it was funny. And it, you know, it like, the characters talked like the characters, like the, not the characters, but like the people that were in my classroom and like real people, like real kids, teenagers. And it still had some really difficult issues, but they were things, these were my students who were eighth graders 
about to go to high school. Um, and these kids, I mean, I had kids who had crazy worlds. Um, and, and those are the kids, you know, again, we'll talk about hope wins, but those were the very kids that I was thinking of every year that I taught. I had a kid that became a parent at this school. I had kids at a young man who, whose mother was murdered right in front of him. And I say these things not for shock value because, but because they were real, I had kids that were dealing with really tough stuff. And so the idea that a book that had some profanity in it and dealt with some hard issues like that, the idea that that book would be too much for them was a ridiculous idea. So um, I didn't know any better. <laughs> and so I fell in love with it and I used my own money and bought a class set of paperbacks. Uh, I remember having to have a conversation with my husband to say, you know, like, I'm going to need $200 when we had no money. You know, we just graduated from college. I had student loans and all that. And but I was like, I, I, I can't teach Shane. I just can't do it. <laughs> and so he, of course, was fine with it. So I buy the books. And then I asked for, for permission. I didn't, I was, you know, too naive to know that I was, that's not the way you actually are supposed to do things that you're supposed to ask, like your director or your curriculum director. So I was asked to turn over a copy of the book and then was basically told like, you cannot teach this book. And I was like, but I have to teach this book. And it was a whole thing. Let me tell you, there's, um, but, but so to answer your, I'm getting back to your question, to answer your question, um, that's really, so then I just kept reading YA and because mostly because I wanted books that um, I could, I wanted to have the ability to recommend books to my kids just really naturally and to be able to come in and talk about the books that I was reading in hopes that it would spark something in kids and not that any, you know, one book was going to speak to everybody, but that I, I could, you know, something would sound really good. And it could be like, Hey, when you finish that, can I read it? And so I started building my classroom library that way. And I just never stopped. So I, that's really probably once I became a teacher is when I started, um, when I got back, we super, super hooked on reading and there was still purpose, um, behind it, but I 100% also loved every minute of that reading myself. When do you start reaching out to actual authors and getting them involved with your students? You know, that it was a while. It really wasn't until um, I became a librarian. And even then, I mean, you got to think that like, you know, back in the 90s, we weren't, you know, uh, the internet wasn't operating the way, <laughs> certainly the way we know it today. And so, you know, everything was like a, a, a very static web page, you know, you didn't have interactive kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, once I became a librarian, I, I started learning all kinds of stuff, you know, that, you know, you have the opportunities to program. I certainly, you know, we, I made sure my kids knew of authors, but I, I certainly wasn't engaging with them. And it wasn't until I moved into the library and realized, oh, like there's an opportunity maybe be for me to actually uh, reach out to an author by their email or or however you know their web page uh, or website says and and see if I could maybe get them to come visit my school and once I did it I was like it was so impactful and it you know my kids were so crazy about it I thought I have to do this again and and again and again and so um, in the years that I was a school librarian um, I had at my last school uh, where I spent most of the time as a librarian um, I, I ended up having 54 authors at that school, which is a crazy number of authors. Um, and there were other things, I mean, there, it, that doesn't just happen kind of accidentally. There were definitely some other things going on. I was 
you know, doing my doctoral work, I was out um, presenting what, you know, the things that I was passionate about at conferences, I was meeting publishers, I was meeting authors, and those things kind of all kind of worked together to provide me opportunities that allowed for um, me to connect with authors and bring them to my school. Um, but I saw what a huge difference that made to my kids. Um, so I love that. And of course, I wanted to do more of it made a difference because they could see that the authors of the stories they loved were real or because they knew that maybe they themselves could be an author? All of those things. Uh, answer C. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, no, I mean, like there's something so powerful about for a kid getting to, to, you know, see that person live. And, and I think kids today have, you know, more of an advantage because of the tools that are out there because of social media, being able to see authors who choose to engage that way. It's also a lot for an author, I will say. There's a lot more, I think, pressure on the author to be engaged in all the ways. Um, but, you know, kids can, you know, there's nothing like having somebody whose stories matter to them, standing in front of them and talking about their work and their lives and, and also encouraging them, telling them, hey, like you can do this. Um, and that, you know, with Hope Wins, that's one of the things that I, kind of one of the things that's happened somewhat organically that I, I can't completely take credit for. Teachers have shown me the way in this um, is that, you know, my intention with these, my two hope books um, was to share um, stories of hope with young people, really with all people, because I, I think that these books um, are books that really speak to all people. Um, but I wanted stories for kids that I cared about and, and all kids. Um, but I think the, the thing that has come out of it that I've seen educators do is that they've used these stories to really help show kids that, Hey, your story matters too. Like there's no one way to tell your story. And that's kind of the beauty of an anthology like this is that they get to hear all these different voices. They see the different, I mean, if you're looking at it from a craft perspective, you get to see that there's no one way to tell your story, right? Each of these writers, even though they are published authors and many of them very successful, they're all doing it a little differently and they're all right. There's no wrong way to do it. So hopefully what young people take out of it is that like they, they can apply that and realize a, a number one, their story matters. Even if they think like, I don't have a story. Of course they have a story. We all have a story. So they can see that. And then they can see like, I don't have to do it one way. It doesn't have to look like this. I can make it the way I want it to be. Um, and so again, I hadn't really thought about the, the books necessarily being in, from a like a teachable um, opportunity, but teachers have done that with them. And um, and I wouldn't have known that had they not shared that with me. And, and I had not seen some amazing stuff that teachers are doing um, with, with um, uh, Hope Nation first and, and even now with Hope Wins. And that's, that really, you know, obviously makes my heart really happy to see um, them connect um, these books that way. So Hope Nation, uh, which is the 2018 best YA audiobook of the year, according to Audiophile Magazine. And, and they would know their Audiophile Magazine. <laughs> You're here, esteemed audience. You like listening to things. Check out Hope Nation and then get your copy of, of Hope Wins. Uh, I had read elsewhere that you said that uh, part of the the impetus for Hope Nation 
was the 2016 presidential election and seeing how young people were struggling and feeling they didn't have a voice because they weren't able to vote. What sort of things were you seeing? What what was the point at which you said, well, we've got to put together an anthology like this? How does that, how does Hope Nation come together? And then we'll talk about the sequel. Um, so it, really just what you said. It was in 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 this case, I had an opportunity. Um I had done a lot of, so I do a lot of freelance writing for publishers and have for a very long time. Basically what I do, I create lots of different things, but I often work on new books that they have coming out. I'll work with the marketing team to create educational materials to support that book. Um, and so with um, one particular publisher who I had done a lot of work for uh, many of his authors, he reached out to me one day and uh, and asked me if I, I mean, he literally cold called me, which I just made me laugh because that's not uh, for anybody who's wanting to be published. We, you know, people work really hard and, and they can write amazing things and it doesn't mean they're going to, you know, that's going to happen. So I recognized, first of all, that was somewhat ridiculous. And, and I was super privileged in having that happen to me. He was super also disappointed because after he asked me if I wanted to work together and collaborate on a book, I told him, no, thank you. <laughs> and I think it was not what he was expecting. I wasn't sure if he thought I had like a YA novel in a desk drawer that I was pining to get published, but I didn't. And I also rec recognized that, um, you know, I, I didn't want to just jump on and take advantage of that privilege and knock something out quickly because I really felt and still feel that like, you know, if you're, if you're writing something, you've got a story you want to tell. And I wasn't sitting with the story that I felt called to tell. So um, we ended the conversation with the agreement that I was going to think about if there was something I wanted to do. And it just so happened that um, President Obama gave his uh, farewell um, address. And, you know, his whole campaign was based on hope. And, and as a hoper myself, it got me thinking about that. It got me thinking about, like, again, those, those same students I've already talked about a little bit that have had really hard lives. And just like the, the books in my classroom that kids would want to check out. And, you know, primarily it was a lot of fiction, which is great. I kind of gravitate toward fiction myself, but sometimes kids would want nonfiction. They, you know, back then those um, chicken soup books were so super popular. And I realized the reason kids wanted them, you know, the idea was that they were supposed to all be nonfiction. I, I wonder about that sometimes, but it doesn't really matter. They, they gave kids something, right. Um, inspired them, gave them hope. And, um, that got me thinking about wanting something like that. So, so in thinking about those two things coming together, thinking about what was happening in my own personal life, literally like the election had just happened. I had two young women in my, in my life that, um, that are super important to me that were struggling because they were both 17 years old in a, in a, honestly, in a very red state. And, and they felt like they didn't have a voice. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a vote yet. And I didn't, it wasn't that I wanted to make a big political statement. That really wasn't the case because I, I hope in both cases with both books, well, certainly hope wins, but even with Hope Nation, which was inspired by the election, it, this was not necessarily meant to just be like a resistance book. Um, though those are fine books, I wanted something that was even more universal. I just wanted kids to recognize that like, you know, everyone has difficult times and, you know, kids feel so much, young people, teens feel so much. And often we dismiss um, how their, their uh, emotions and, 
you know, I think the difference between them and us is simply experience. And so, you know, we as, as adults have more life experience. We've been through hard things that we've overcome and we go into the next hard thing. And that's the nature of the cycle of life. Right. But young people in many cases haven't had those things and, or they're facing them for the first time. And so that's really what inspired me to create something like that. Um, when I first approached or when he approached me and then I got back with him, I think he thought that I was going to write a whole book about hope. And I was like, Oh no, 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 (laughs) first of all, no kid wants to read that. They don't know who the heck I am. And, and I don't know that I have that much to say, but I really liked the idea of unlike the, the chicken soup books where it was these anonymous writers, you know, people that they didn't know. I thought about, um, um, the people that write books are ready for young people. And, and unlike their fiction, because these are all fiction writers, I want them to think, to kind of sit and have a quiet moment with themselves and think about like, Hey, what my life has been hard or what is the thing that I've really had to work at, um, to overcome. And I gave them a lot of, um, free range. And, um, you know, I asked them to, to sit with that and, and, and use that to really kind of inspire telling something about their own experience. And that's how Hope Nation happened. And then um, all of that. And then it was a, you know, it's been, it's been really wonderful to see what people have done with that book. And as you mentioned, I was so surprised and delighted that um, it was a finalist for the audiobook of the year for the YA category. And I will say, um, if you like to read books with your ears, the audiobook, um, actually both books, um, um, but Hope Nation um, is outstanding, and um, it's a, a full cast. and And Penguin Random House Audio just did a brilliant job with the selection of the narrators, and it, it's just really, really well done. I still, on occasion, when I need a little boost of hope, I will listen to a selection or two. I just kind of mix it up, and um, and so that that really was great, but. So, you know, Hope Wins um, was, you know, born. I know you didn't really ask this, but it seems like a good place to kind of transition to it. So that's what inspired the first one. And then, um, you know, a little time has passed. And I wasn't, you know, I really thought it was a one and done thing. I'm far more comfortable championing other people's books than I am, you know, creating my own. Um, but, you know, as an editor, it's you're kind of in a unique place because these are not my stories. Um, I'm the ambassador of these stories. Um, and I... Uh, it is my idea. I'm the one who works with the writers to, you know, get the stories from them. And, and in some cases, I'm working very closely with the contributors. In some cases, it's a little more hands off. You know, um, the approach is interesting. I learned a lot from doing Hope Nation and how to approach the writers um, for Hope Wins. Um, so I was able to kind of um, streamline things a little bit from what I learned. Um, I will say anytime you're working with a bunch of authors, it's like herding cats um, (laughs) because they're all over the place. Creatives uh, often are, but it's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, the thing that I try to really be um, mindful of is that all of these writers in both collections are people who are, you know, they're busy writing their own stories. And so what a generous thing to, to pause that work and take a, some time to do some personal reflection and then write about it and share it um, in these very generous ways. Um, both books are books that are what I call my projects for good. So they're uh, they're um, done with intent. Um, Hope Nation was done um, where uh, each each of us had um, a charity of choice that we were essentially working for. 
And so with the publication of that book, we were able to support with, and with Penguin uh, Young Readers support as well, they match that money. Um, we were able to support a lot of um, really incredible organizations and charities. Um, and uh, with Hope Wins, it was, you know, a similar project, except that we realized, or that I should say the Penguin legal team realized that giving money to 20 plus charities is not an easy thing to do because you have to make sure that all the, the charities are in fact charities. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, you, a lot of uh, legal stuff that has to happen behind the scenes to make sure that money is going to organizations that are um, entitled to it. And so we did this project with with one nonprofit in mind, which is um, the North Texas Teen Book Festival, which is very near and dear to my heart as I co-founded it. And the the um, the lion's share of the contributors to Hope Wins were people that actively come or have come to the festival and really understand our mission behind that festival. And so that's part of the reason they wanted to be a part of the project. Um, and so that's that's how those things came about. It's uh, very intimidating just to look at the um, the cover of either of the books with the type of authors that you, that you have. I mean, you've got uh, Tom Engelberger, Mr. Mm -hmm. Uragama Yoda himself. You've got James Bird, Max Brolier, former guest, Hina Khan. Uh, check the back catalog, esteemed uh, audience, well worth uh, doing for God's sake. R.L. Stein, Gordon Corbin. <laughs> they got a name on this list that's not extremely intimidating. And everybody <laughs> who's been in this anthology is welcome on this show for sure. Mm -hmm. So these are people that you're that you're walking up to at some point during the festival and saying, hey, do you like hope? Do you like writing? Well, <laughs> not exactly like that. Good question. No, I, I mean, I will be honest. I'm very privileged to tell you that, you know, most of these people are actually dear friends of mine. Um, and again, I, you know, people that all kind of boggles the mind, but but I've been doing this a long time. And um, because, you know, I started as a child. <laughs> so I always tell people that I'm a child bride. So I've been married so long. Um, and, you know, I mean, certainly there's some that the, the festival is where we we connected. Um, and some of these people have been my friends, like, you know, for for decades. Gordon Corman has been, you know, one of my very best friends for 20 years. Um, and we did meet at a conference. We were at a, a dinner together and hit it off and um, you know, just adore each other, love each other's families. And, and so um, there were some people I gave no choice to because they, again, <laughs> they were, they're good enough friends that they they weren't going to tell me no. And then others, I didn't know as well, but I admired their writing and asked them and explained the mission behind the project. Um, in many cases, some of them already knew. Um, so for Hope Wins, um, some of the people, the contributors, um, knew of Hope Nation. They knew the people that were in Hope Nation and they were, you know, for whatever reason, whether they just also recognize that like, you know, two years of a pandemic, kids being at home, school being such a mess that they, you know, they just wanted to put some good out in the world. And I think that's the thing, whether it's the YA edition or the middle grade edition, I think all these contributors really, um, they're good people and they want to serve young people. They do through their work as well. Um, but these are giving kind, generous people that we're willing to share um, and be a part of this you know, project for good. Um, and I refer to all of them collectively as Team Hope. So we're, you know, we're all in it together. And, um, and that's, that means a lot to me. And you're right, they're superstars. Like, and even, you know, some of the people that were already superstars have gotten just to be more superstar <laughs> status in, 
and the time, I mean, I think back to like Hope Nation and some, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Some of the folks that, you know, Angie Thomas, who is very, very dear to me. Um, you know, I asked Angie before the Hate You Give published. I happened to have an early copy of um, of the Hate You Give and read it, was blown away and and knew I was working on that project. And I thought this this young woman has something so important to say. Um, and so asked her and just got super lucky. I've had lots of people say, how the heck did you get Angie Thomas to do something for you? And I was like, because I asked early, <laughs> you know, before her life became so big. And I mean, she's doing amazing things and she's super generous and does all kinds of things for all kinds of important organizations, but she, her time is very limited. And so, um, and her publisher would like her doing stuff for them, not, you know, she just doesn't have the, the bandwidth to do stuff for people all over the place. So um, in some cases, it's been such a joy to, to watch folks like Angie and other people too. Um, you know, Jason Re Reynolds was already a force, but you know, now he's just taken over the world <laughs> and, and, and things like that, Nick Stone. Um, but, but in this book, you're right. I mean, you, you have somebody like Arl Stein, who's been so impactful for the last 30 years and Bob, who um, is, you know, what his friends call him. And I feel lucky enough to get to call him that too. Um, you know, I realized that, um, you know, I, I never, in, in asking, I'm always okay. And there were definitely people, I should say, there were people that got away. I won't list them, but for a variety of reasons, I didn't get every single person. In some cases, you know, people scheduled it just, they were interested, but they just couldn't make the timeline, the tight timeline work. And in other cases, you know, life happened and, and they planned on being a part of it and then, um, you know, just couldn't. But um, I decided a long time ago that it's like the pretty girl at the dance who's standing around because all the boys or girls think she's too pretty and she's going to turn them no, right? You don't, you don't not ask simply because you assume they're going to decline. And, and so, you know, Bob was a great example of that. R.L. Stein, you know, with his hundreds of millions of books sold, um, he's made such a difference for young people for so long, for generations, literally. Um, and, you know, he was kind enough to say yes. And um, because, you know, Bob is giving and generous and, and wants to make a difference too. So, um, and does with his own work clearly, but, um, and yay for 30 years of goosebumps. Um, that's, you know, we're celebrating that right now and which is so exciting, crazy to think. Um, true, like three generations of, of people that, that um, or three decades of people, you know, reading those books. Um, pretty, pretty incredible. But yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. I just, I didn't ask, I explained what I wanted to do. And, and uh, I had the good fortune that I had some anchor people that of course, you always hit up your friends first, right? <laughs> so I did. So I, I had the folks that, you know, I wasn't gonna let them say no to me. Um, and they didn't even try. And then, you know, I certainly, I certainly made sure that um, the other folks that I was asking knew who they were going to be working with, so to speak. Um, and, you know, this is really, my name's on the spine, but really it's our book. Um, absolutely. Because, you know, I have an introduction and I have the editing and the behind the scenes work, but if it weren't for their stories, there would be no book. So it is very much um, a collective endeavor. Well, now I, I have to ask, knowing that you are, you are the editor of the anthology, how do you say, oh, Mr. Stein, that might work on Fear Street or whatever, but when we're here, I'm going to need you to correct this, change this. How do you, how do you, <laughs> on Superman's cape? 
<laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Not easily. And in some cases, I mean, at the end of the day, here's the thing, right? These are all professional writers. They have been honing their craft for a long time. And um, you, you know, I gave everybody notes um, and, and then it's still their story. So at the end of the day, they have the, I mean, again, they're donating this piece to the collection. Um, so, you know, it, I probably don't have as much um, uh, force uh, behind my words, maybe as a traditional editor, though I will say everybody was so um, really open and generous to the feedback that I gave them. And the process was interesting. I learned that with both volumes that, you know, in some cases, some folks really wanted to have a back and forth relationship where they would send me what they were working on or even before they wrote. In some cases, I've had Zoom meetings with um, some of the authors to really kind of figure out what they wanted to write because I gave with both collections. I mean, again, it's you know topically the same, thematically the same, um, you know, hope. But for some people, that's overwhelming. They're like, what the heck do I write about, right? That's a pretty, you know, generic, so to, so to uh, speak, you know, uh, category. Um, so in some cases, I, you know, if I knew them personally and I might've known something about their life, I might've said um, like, hey, I really want you to, I would love for you to consider writing about this thing. Um, and then some of them, you know, they're like, okay, got the assignment, like get out of my way, let me do the thing. So I had really a range of, of how much I interacted with the creation of what they were doing. Then once they turned the stories in, I gave everybody notes. I read over it. And I did, to be clear, I did have an in-house editor at Penguin. Um, Jill Santapalo worked with me for Hope Wins. Um, and so um, I would get there. I would make my notes. And then um, Jill and I, I would send her my notes and she'd look over them. And, and largely we agreed. Um, and she might add something or she might say, you know, um, you know, maybe, uh, clarify something that she felt like it was missing but by and large she let me just lead the way and then once you know once we got a a second um you know slightly adjusted or more polished copy then we would you know then it went on to the other phases the copy edits and all that kind of stuff but um but every author handled it differently but really they were really so gracious and willing to take um to take my feedback. And mostly it was, you know, it wasn't, I, nobody turned in a mess. I was very lucky in that regard. It wasn't like a sloppy copy. So um, it was more like, hey, can you elaborate on this? Or can you insert yourself here more about like when you were a kid, that kind of thing. There were a couple of places like that where what folks wrote, I felt like was missing a little, it needed a little more reflection about childhood um, because um, the, the, the stories themselves um, are, kind of all over the place. Some of them are direct reflections on childhood. Some of them start with childhood and then, um, you know, connect to current day. There are some where they're really talking about themselves today, but speaking to kids about their experiences now. So it, it really did vary um, from person to person. And I was just lucky because they're all really nice piece, people. <laughs> There's no a-holes in the group. So that helps. <laughs> no, you know, even again, people with a lot of success, no arrogance. Um, and that's, that's really, that's, you know, that's a lovely thing. Well, I would love to think because, you know, a esteemed audience, I love authors. I would love to think that every successful writer ever is also a wonderful person, but there are too many large, large examples of that not being true. But usually it's the one or two big examples. By and large, book people really are the world's best people. They are. Absolutely. They truly are. Uh, again, 
um, I will say it again, no a-holes in, in either of these uh, books. I mean, everybody's just, they're just nice people, lovely people that like doing work for kids. I mean, it is their job, you know, and I think that's the thing that um, often people forget. Uh, and, you know, I try to be um, mindful of that. Like this is, this is work for them. I mean, you know, writing books and publishing like that is, that is their, uh, for many of them, that is their day job. And if, if it's not their day job, it's a second job. And so, um, you know, they are professionals, but they do it because they feel called to do it. And I think people that want to put out good in the world for kids are generally good people. Um, again, you know, there's every, every rule has an exception, but I think those, those are, those are, um, very far, uh, few and far in between. So now um, Hope Ones is out in the world newly. Hope Nation's been out for a while. Mm-hmm. You have been dealing hope, as was the plan. What, uh, what have been some of your favorite reader responses? Oh, my gosh. You know, um, I, I, I get brought to tears easily. Um, just yesterday, um, uh, there's a, a young man, I believe. I, I need to apologize. I shouldn't assume this person's gender. But I'm I'm glancing down for those of you that are actually watching this with your eyes and not just listening. I'm glancing down at my my phone because I was copied in a tweet yesterday by somebody E Train Talks and um and they posted and they are a young book um uh, reviewer um and they posted a a, a photo of themselves uh, holding hope wins and they said on Twitter um. Hashtag hope comes in many forms. Sometimes hope is a beautiful sunset and sometimes hope is a long, warm hug. But most of all, it's a reminder that no matter what life throws at you, there's always a glimmer of light. Hope wins. I love the middle grade lit Hope Wins anthology. My heart is full. And to hear that from a kid, I literally started crying. I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, um, it just means a whole lot. And, um, you know, I know that you know, obviously I want any reader that comes to this collection to hopefully, you know, the beauty of an anthology is that you can dip your toe in, dip your toe out. You can read in any order. You certainly don't have to read it cover to cover, but I hope if someone is feeling kind of blue, that maybe just not feeling so alone, recognizing that, you know, we, life is hard and that we all have to go at it together and and build each other up. Um, And, and I know through that process, there will be people that work with young people that will hopefully connect these stories with them, even though I think the collection is universal and I, I certainly want adults to read it too. I hope there are people that are in positions to work with kids that they'll get these stories to them because that's, they're really who I had in mind. Everybody else, grownups like you and me, we're, we're the, the bonus that comes. That's a wonderful thing, right? Um, and for those folks that are listening or watching, I appreciate, you know, them enjoying the the book as well, but mostly in my heart, I wanted it to be for kids because that's, you know, that's who I decided a long time ago I wanted to work with. Um, and um, even though I don't work as directly with kids anymore, now that I'm not in a K-12 school and working um, at a university, I work with people who work with kids. And and so I'm always trying to find ways, whether it's through my books or the book festival, to continue serving young people. Um, because, you know, I then insert all the cliches, you know, <laughs> children are the future and all those kinds of things. But it's all true. I mean, we, it's cliched for a reason. It's, you know, there's truth in every bit of it. And um, I, I, I think, um, you know, I have all the hope in the world and in, in young people. I think they're this generation of young people are kinder and better than we certainly were. Um, and 
and are. And so I, you know, I think they have a, an opportunity to make the, the world better and I'm getting older by the day. So <laughs> I appreciate any which way they make the world better. <laughs> you bring up an important selling point for the anthology esteemed audience. You don't have to read it straight through, hang on to it, keep it in your desk. You need a little hope today. You need a little hope on Thursday in between you read Banneker bones and the giant robot beast. You read whatever <laughs> else you want to read. You can, you can fit this in whatever, whatever you've got. You could read a book by every author on here and then read their peace and hope wins or vice versa. You can hang on to this. This could be a, a year long meal for you, esteemed audience. <laughs> you <laughs> Absolutely. And nice plug there, you're incorrigible, but yes, exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that is 100% the truth, right? Like um, you never know when you're gonna need a little bit. Um, so you can space it out. You know, hope can win every day and any day that you need it too. That there you go. That's how you. That's what you're gonna title uh, book three. Hope can win any day. That's <laughs> that is the no the no I, falls I, anthology. Either of those <laughs> <laughs> should work well. So I want to. I'm watching our time. I know it's flying by, but I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk a little bit about the the North Texas Team Book Festival, uh, which of course you're you're you co-founding. You're coming back here in May. You're gonna be in person in May. So how uh, March. Work it's March. That oh, I'm sorry, March. Uh, I knew I knew it was a month that started with them. It's an M uh, month. You were close. What uh, what kind of thing? Because I think the people who either attend festivals or get invited to festivals don't know just how much work goes on behind the scenes. So how much preparation are you doing now to get ready for the March <laughs> festival? It never stops. We work on it year round. Um, so uh, we've had eight NTTBFs. Uh, we started hoping to have about 500 young people there. We had 53 authors our first year. Uh, YA middle grade authors, many of whom were also friends that I leaned on <laughs> to come. And they did, they totally showed up and it delivered. We thought, okay, maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe 500 kids will come. And we had 3,500 people in attendance that first year. Year two, we grew to 8,000 and we've, um, we've been up at about 15,000 plus ever since. Um, and so when you're hosting a party, so to speak, for 15,000 of your closest friends, you know, that takes a lot of work, a lot of organization. Um, I work with um, the Irving Public Library, primarily specifically with many amazing people, but the actual uh, brainchild behind uh, NTTBF, Kristen Trevino from the Irving Public Library, uh, Teen Services Librarian. Uh, she and I were both kind of had ideas for doing something in our community for teens, but Kristen was a little more organized than me, had some, that was already kind of getting the ball rolling and reached out to me uh, because somebody recommended me and we met and the rest is history, so to speak. So we work on it all the time. We're constantly working with um, publishers and figuring out who our lineup's going to be. We're, we have the great good fortune that, um, that lots of people want to come to our event and um, publishers support that because we get a lot of people there and we sell a lot of books and those are good things. And, um, and it's really just a, a, a day that's just full of celebration of stories. And our, our tagline is even endless stories and it really fits because there are always new stories and we want to continue promoting those stories and celebrating those stories. So we're going to have year nine in March and uh, we do it. And this is this event for those of you listening all over. Um, you're welcome to come. We have people flying all over from all over the country. We have people come from out of the, I mean, from all over the U.S. So domestically, and then even from other countries, people come. Uh, my favorite um, parent ever, I think the MVP parent was a parent that drove 
uh, a dad that drove his daughter from Mexico City up to Dallas Fort Worth to attend. We have this, we have a sign where people can put um, like dots where they come from. So we actually see where people are coming from. We have um, hero librarians that um, that get buses from other states and bus kids in from Arkansas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and uh, and then certainly all over Texas. People come to us, um, and it's a really wonderful celebration. It's almost all kids. There are definitely adult readers, but um, the adults are welcome. But it's not it's not about them in our mind because <laughs> I don't work this hard for adults. Um, that's just <laughs> that's just my general policy. I like adults. I like I love people, but but if I'm gonna um, put out this much effort in, in my service. Um, it's going to be for young people. And so, and they sure do come and it's really, it's just, it's just such a wonderful, beautiful thing to watch them be that excited and to, to, um, see, you know, kids celebrating stories. Um, you mentioned, uh, to me personally earlier about uh, going to the NTTBF, um, YouTube channel where you can see some recaps. We've had a couple of recaps made and you really get a sense. You can also see some online for those of you that might not make it. Uh, for in 2020, um, we had to have a completely virtual, I'm not sorry, 2020 was our last in-person event. The week before the world shut down, we had um, 84 authors with us and then um, March um, 7th, and then um, everybody went home and then nobody went anywhere again. Uh, but so for 2021, rather, we did a completely virtual event with, I think we ended up with 97 authors. Um, and some really uh, impressive uh, programs. All of that still lives on the YouTube site. So you can go uh, hear Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and uh, Jason Reynolds uh, in conversation with me. You can go uh, see Chelsea Clinton and the, um, the authors of the She Persisted books there, um, Catherine Applegate and many and Jeff Kinney and many others, amazing people that did programs for us, panels, and those live there. And, you know, our program is always all of our, whether it's in person or virtual, um, there's never a charge to participate in any of it. But if you're too far away, you can go see what we do. And then for 2021, we were, um, we did a, um, we did a, um, a hybrid model where half of our program was virtual and half was back in person to kind of dip our toe back in. And for uh, uh, 20, um, uh, that was 2022. And for 2023, we'll be completely back in person. So um, we're already at, you know, working hard to plan our programs. And it's all still a, 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 a secret and a surprise. But if you follow um, our social media, NTTBF, you can see when we roll out our keynotes. And we always have the most amazing people. We're super, super lucky in that regard. Um, and, um, and then you're obviously welcome to come. I know virtual is obviously not the same as in person, but I hope that, you, that as, that as you go forward, you'll continue to film, uh, some things and release them after the fact or release at least a portion. I'm going to give us a little taste for free and then we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to try it. And, you know, the, the thing about putting on a, a party for, you know, 15,000 people, is that that doesn't cost anything is the party is expensive. And so, um, you know, we're, we're always fundraising because again, um, it's super important to us that we provide this to our community and to the young people in this community for free. Uh, we don't want to ever have any kind of gatekeeping that prevents a kid from being a part of that experience. So, um, we, we, it's, it, it is not, um, uh, it is not 
cheap to make that happen, which is part of why Hope Wins, uh, in large part, why Hope Wins um, is, you know, the the um, the project is uh, benefits NGTBF because in addition to actually having the festival and all that that entails, renting out a convention center and, and doing that, we do something at NGTBF where um, called Speed Date with a Book, where we give away hundreds, usually around a thousand books to the kids. We sell thousands of books day of, but we also give away um, to kids who might not otherwise be able to get a book that day and participate in the in the um, end of day author signing. We give away uh, brand new books that we purchase. Not They're not donated books. We buy them from our book vendor and then give them away to some of the young people um, that are coming that might not otherwise get books. So um, it does take a lot, but to answer your question, we would love and hope to, to, to have the capacity to record, to have a way to record um, those live programs. It's something definitely on our, um, our to-do list. It, we'll just have to see whether we can pull it off or not. Um, but we'll probably always have some special programs. Um, we also did, some, in addition to the panels that we've done um, virtually the last couple of years, we've done spotlight programs that end up on the YouTube um, channel. So you can find all, there's all kinds of great content there. Um, so definitely go check that out. Uh, and esteemed audience knows that uh, I would never have a guest on this show and not ask Dr. Rose Brock, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Um, no flying saucer, um, though I totally believe there's got to be more than just this. Um, and same goes for the ghost, right? Like, so I've never, I've never seen a ghost, although I had the scariest, I, I almost never remember my dreams, but I had the scariest ghostly dream just like two nights ago. And I never had those. And it was like, I woke up terrified and I, I you know, I'm a pretty happy go lucky gal. So I was like, what is happening? So a ghost of my dreams, if that counts, then the answer is yes. But I certainly, again, same thing. I, I, I am pro ghost, pro UFOs. I just haven't had personal experience. Well, just because the experience wasn't technically real doesn't mean it wasn't an experience. So. Oh, right. For sure. For sure. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I know somebody, I actually have a former lit professor who lives in a haunted house who um, who has in uh, Arkansas, like at the most haunted house, I think in Arkansas, like I like I feel like the Sci-Fi Channel has recorded something about his home. Um, if you look up uh, Mark Spencer and he's a um, professor at University of Arkansas, Monticello, I think that's not where he was my professor, but that's where he um, is. Um, he's an academic there. I think he's actually a dean maybe of College of Arts and Sciences. His home in Monticello is a haunted house with all kinds of recorded uh, ghostly activity. So I have not visited it, which I'm okay with, <laughs> but he and his family are living in it and, and you know, they've made peace with, um, with the other occupants. I tell you what you do, you get all these authors from uh, Hope Wins and you, you get them all to stay at the house for a night and then you write another anthology about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll have it genre specific, right? <laughs> hope scares hope scares the crap out of you. Ah, <laughs> uh, and last uh, before we before we close out here, I wanted to ask you about your upcoming publication, Sound Advice, an audiobook selection handbook for library collections. What can you tell us about that? Um, so it's an academic uh, book, kind of more of a not a textbook, more of a handbook for libraries 
on why audiobooks matter so much um, as tools of literacy um, and really how to how to select and pick the best audiobooks for your collections. You know, we've seen audiobooks just explode over the last couple of years. I mean, they were they were already on a um, real uh, growth pattern anyway in regard to sales, but the pandemic just made crazy things, good crazy things start happening. Um, audiobooks have been a passion of mine for a long time as an educator. And um, so that's what I'm writing about. Um, I should say, since you brought that up, that book is late because of Hope Wins. Hope Wins ended up kind of, that wasn't in my academic calendar or my writing calendar. So when I shifted to do Hope Wins, that, that caused me to put a pause on um, on the sound ha handbook. So I'm going to, I'm turning my attention back to that and um, hopefully it will be out before too long. And then I also am the author of a YA textbook that is going to start being due for uh, a next edition before long. So I'll be, I'll be shifting to working on uh, updating that before too long. And that's called Young Adult Literature in Action, a librarian's guide. So it's used often in library science coursework for somebody who's taking a YA class. Well, we're gonna have to have a whole other conversation just uh, just about the, the textbook. Uh, yeah, I, sure. Anytime. Uh, hard out, so I've been watching our time. Like, please don't make me like make Dr. Broccoli. <laughs> Where can the uh, audience uh, follow you online and find out more information about these projects as they're coming out? Sure. Um. So on uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm really Rose Brock, and which I'm only really Rose Brock because I got Rose Brock on Twitter when Twitter was brand new, so it was an egg. And then I, um, I made the, the fatal mistake that often people do with, you know, with account, I associated with an account that I have no longer. So then I also forgot the password. So it's this vicious cycle. I couldn't get back to my original Rose Brock, um, that I, that I was able to, um, secure way back when. So then I had to open a new Twitter account and I thought that time to hell with it. I'll, I guess I'll just be really Rose Brock. So I am really Rose Brock, Instagram and Twitter. And um, if you want to look at pictures of my dog, <laughs> you can find me there. And, and no, I talk a lot about books. My Facebook is mostly just, you know, family stuff. But that's that's Rose Brock without the really. Um, and, and but probably Instagram is the place where I talk the most about books. And I certainly share about um, what I'm doing um, with the festival as well as my own writing. And projects. Dr. Rosalicious Brock, this has been an absolutely <laughs> wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you making the time for esteemed audience and, and for me. And I hope that you will come back because I know you're going to have another anthology. Uh, just talking about the festival alone, I know we could do easily another couple of hours. Uh, Probably so. Thank you again for, for being here today. Uh, esteemed audience, uh, you know that for more interviews, almost as good as this one, uh, plus for uh, any more information about writing, about editing, about publishing, for interviews with book people, for everything that's good in this world, go to middlegradeninja.com. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. <laughs>